I plan to go to law school after I graduated, but uh, looks like my folks won't have enough money to put me through college. Well, the world needs ditch diggers, too. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans. Then I became the CEO man. Are you ready to be mentored by some of the best minds in entrepreneurship in the world? Then you're listening to the right podcast, Ditch Digger CEO. We're going to be interviewing CEOs and founders who will be telling their amazing rags to riches stories. These entrepreneurs who dominate the industries they serve will be sharing the secrets to their success. We'll be talking to millionaires and billionaires. Many who started with nothing. You're going to be mentored with golden nuggets of shared experiences from my guest, whose time is worth thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars per hour. I started in the paving business right out of high school. And with no college education, mentorship has been my education of choice. I started over 25 companies in the last 20 years, have generated over $1.5 billion in revenues. My guarantee is this. If you listen to Ditch Digger CEO and you want to be more successful, you will become more successful. The secrets of my success and for many of the world's greatest business leaders will be revealed. Let Ditch Digger CEO mentor you. All right, so here we are today, Ditch Digger CEO. I've got an awesome, we've got an awesome guest here, Robbie. Uh, Mark Kaufman, I've heard so many things about Mark without ever meeting him. The mutual, many mutual friends that uh, often said, well, you know, do you know, do you know that athletical guy? Man, that guy's amazing. Or, you know, hey, do you know Mark Kaufman? He's a guy you want to talk to about that, right? And uh, you have so many YPO friends of mine that are friends of yours, Mark, and different people that, that are, are aggressive entrepreneurs that love your story. So I've heard so many people mention you. And then, and then eventually I had the blessing to, to meet you at a, at a fundraising event here a couple months ago. And, I, and sure enough, I said, man, I want you on my podcast, right? And you said. You kind of gave me the case you might do it, and uh, so we followed up, and you're in, man, so we're excited. So Mark Kaufman is, a, is a, one of the best entrepreneurs uh, uh, that I've seen in, in, in today's world, and excited to tell, tell, tell your story, Mark. So Mark, if you can, if you can go ahead and introduce yourself, and uh, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get going right away. We'll start digging with questions and all that, uh, but uh, thank you, and welcome, welcome to, uh, to, to being here with us and Ditch Digger CEO. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, and uh, Gary, it's a, it was a real blessing to meet you a few uh, several weeks ago, and uh, right back at you. I'd heard so many good things about you, and uh, and so many, you know, starting the YPO group at the business sector, seen your name, and uh, and there you were. So it was fun having that conversation, and I uh, look forward. My name is uh, Mark Kaufman, and I am the founder and executive chairman of Athletico Physical Therapy. We are a Athletico. Uh, Athletico is a physical therapy business that was started in 1991 with one location in downtown Chicago. And that was the grand plan that lasted a couple years. We opened a second site in 94. By the end of uh, the decade 2000, we had 10 locations. By 2010, we had about 60 locations. And uh, present day, 2020, we are around 530 locations in 12 states. Wow. Wow. And, and when, you, uh, when you look back at, at the, you know, this, the, this, this kind of a hockey stick growth, right? I mean, people, you see this a lot in scaling businesses, right? I mean, 
it, it, your first your first 10 years kind of slow growth I mean probably fast growth compared to the industry but slow growth compared to what, what you're doing today um, you know probably a lot of lessons learned right to be able to to be able to get your systems in place to be able to educate and scale like you have right Yes, you know, Gary, we, we, you know, I went into it. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a small town Iowa guy. And to imagine uh, first uh, that I could open a business in Chicago, <laughs> coming from where I came from, and keep it open, that was the goal. And uh, I thought I'd be a physical therapist seeing patients for 30, 40 years and uh, retire at some point. I had no ambition to open that second site. But then a uh, person that worked for me came to me and said, hey, I think we should have a location here. And uh, by then, you know, two or three years of understanding the business and what was working, what wasn't working. And obviously, like you said, making some mistakes, started to get comfortable with that. So we opened a second location. And I uh, jokingly remember uh, uh, when we opened our Glenview office in Chicago, that was our sixth location. I thought we had pretty good coverage of the Chicagoland market. And now we have probably 200 locations in greater Chicagoland. So that uh, goes to uh, my level of business instincts and acumen there. But uh, it's, it's gone a long, came a long way in a relatively short period of time. But uh, each step of the way has been kind of a personal comfort. I went, went from one to two to 10. And then you know, we did 100 locations organically up until around 2014 before we ever did an acquisition and integrated another company, which is a whole uh, another ball of wax, as you know. But uh, those were uh, those early days, a lot of great memories, a lot of great people are still with the company and uh, really uh, came to understand what, what, uh, what and how we could differentiate ourselves as a physical therapy uh, provider. Well, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned Iowa, you know, small town guy from Iowa, it sounds like. I mean, uh, you know, well, can you tell us, go back to a little bit of your childhood, where you, where, you, where, you, where you did grow up and, you know, what type of atmosphere you lived in and, and uh, what, what uh, created this Mark Kaufman guy in the first place? Uh, that's, that's a deep subject. I, uh, um, so I'm from Olds, Iowa, O-L-D-S. It's, uh, if you look on the map, uh, most Iowa maps will have it. There's Back when I was there, there was about 200 people. I think it's down to about 180 now. And uh, my parents still live in the uh, same home I grew up in. I was there two weeks ago. I went and visited them during our pandemic and uh, socially distanced, of course. I, I've been joking that they've been under a quarantine in Old Iowa for 40 years. Just no one ever told them that. <laughs> it's, uh, it was, I, I characterize it as an easy way to grow up. I mean, if I would make a mistake, the whole, the whole town would know about it. Uh, in short order, but uh, you know, as a rural community, a farming community, my dad uh, grew up on a farm, and I worked on a lot of farms. My dad's trade was uh, carpentry. He worked for the same same uh, uh, company for you know forty years practically, and uh, and I probably took something from that in that I, I knew my dad could do it on his own, but yet he. Uh, wanted to come home every night. I think he knew that if he was going to start his own business, grow his own business, that would take him away from me and my sister and our family. And uh, and I'm sure there was a level of, I'll call it fear in going out on your own because it wasn't that we were living uh, paycheck to paycheck. They were always saving and, and being very prudent and thoughtful around that. Um, and, uh, but yet, you know, he, he would do a lot of odd jobs on his own and earn separate income other than what he made working for the com construction company he worked for. And that was usually building, uh, 
residential homes. But uh, I, I think I got a work ethic from him. His name is Larry Kaufman. My mother's Carol. Uh, my mom, they're still uh, with us, thank goodness. Uh, dad's in his 80s now. Mom's in her later 70s. But uh, she was a beautician. She had her own uh, beauty salon for a number of years. It was attached to the house. And, uh, and, and finally walked away from that after... I guess my sister and I were at the age where she uh, uh, needed to spend more time time with us. But uh, it was an easy way of growing up. I have one younger sister, Pamela. Um, my high school class was 50. I always uh, scold my daughters that uh, I was in the top 10 in my, my high school class. Why can't you be? It's only 800. <laughs> Central. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I stay connected to a lot of close friends from those years and classmates that supported uh, my, my high school. It's uh, a consolidation of four uh, local towns to formulate a high school and, and uh, that, which is fairly common in Iowa, but uh, mm -hmm. I, I loved it. I was, uh, you know, it was, like I said, an easy way to grow up. Were you one of the sports stars there in school? Uh, sports star is an exaggeration. It was, uh, if you went out for sports, uh, you were on the team. I was a, I was an okay football player and uh, I was an okay wrestler and uh, my football coach made me go out for track one year and that was all I needed of that. But uh, if, if in Iowa you can't uh, can't shoot a basketball or anything, uh, you know, you become a wrestler, which is obviously big in Iowa. And actually, honestly, uh, led to uh, where I am today. Um, the quick story is that I. Uh, my senior year in high school, I, I knew I wanted to go to Iowa. Uh, Olds is 38 miles straight south of Iowa City where the University of Iowa is. And I knew I, I was a Hawkeye fan. We didn't have pro teams. I, you know, I liked the Chicago teams, and I was a St. Louis Cardinal baseball fan, still am, White Sox fan now. And uh, so I, uh, I wrote a letter to the, a man named Dan Foster, who is a mentor, still a close friend. And I just said, hey, I'm coming to the University of Iowa, and I know a couple things. One, I'm, I – I wrestled and played football and two, I, I know I can't do that, do that at Iowa, but I'd like to stay involved. And, uh, I, you know, if you need any help, he was the athletic trainer working with Dan Gable and the wrestling team. And I said, if you need any help with them, you know, I'll be in, I'll be there for four years and I'd love to do that. And, uh, I, he sent me a packet around the athletic training major, which I didn't know what an athletic trainer was because we obviously didn't want have one at our, our high school. And that piqued my interest. And, uh, you know, the sports medicine background, working with the athletic teams, helping athletes, kids, men and women get back on the field. And uh, ultimately that led to me getting accepted into the program and then on to uh, graduate school and physical therapy school. Wow, how cool is that? I'm working around with one of the legends in wrestling. I was a football wrestler in high school. I didn't go to college. I mean, probably know that. But bottom line is, you know, I, I was a uh, I was a pretty, I was, I was, I was a star of a very small school also, or one, mm -hmm. one of a few stars in football and, yeah. and wrestling. And I was, I, I went to a bigger high school for the first few years. And I was, I wasn't, I wasn't quite as much of a star. It was about five times the size of a high school. I, I started, mm -hmm. I just wasn't, uh, you know, a, a stud there, but bottom line is kind of similar in that, uh, boy, you, you know, you, you really, you really uh, grew to, uh, want to be around that? I really grew to want to be around the atmosphere of the team atmosphere in football, and then the team atmosphere in wrestling. You know, much different than than football, but yet you know, really a, a a great atmosphere to be around as a young person. And then and then to also uh, 
you know, under, understand the, uh, you know, the, the, the different, the di- different training that, that has it, it, both sports, you got to be in pretty good shape, right. But totally different training and, and from football to wrestling, right. You think you're in great, great shape. You go from football, you're ready for wrestling, right. But boy, you get, you get start running around the mat and doing the stairs and, 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 you know, wrestling endlessly, right. For a few, couple hours a day. And you realize you are not in shape at all compared mm-hmm. to, compared to wrestling shape. Right. So, okay. so that's, that's uh, an atmosphere. I, I stayed around a little bit in coaching afterwards and hanging out and stuff. And nowadays I've helped to build a wrestling program in our, in our local high school that that's been fun to watch as they've gotten to be very good. But uh, um, for you, I mean, when, when you look at that, the, the, the work ethic of, of in wrestling as well, right. You probably, if you, if you grew up as a spoiled kid, you're probably not going to be, be a very good fit. Even if you're a decent athlete for the wrestling team, you know, football, you can, you know, you can get away with it a little bit, in my opinion, but wrestling, you aren't going to get around, you know, hard work if you're going to be on the wrestling team, right? So, so I, I, went, I go, I'll go back to hard work. When I, we have, a, you know, kind of common thing. My dad worked in a factory and did side jobs all the time and had his own little businesses going on, to, you know, serving customers. Uh, my mom did things to, to help out to make a little bit of money here and there as well. But you grew up with, 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 with what I think is an unfair advantage, right? Two great parents that love you, a family that loves you, a sister uh, that, that loves you, I'm sure. And, and, and in that loving atmosphere, the work ethic that you had to grow to respect when you watched your dad and your mom, right? Uh, that's, un, that's, in my opinion, that's an unfair advantage compared to uh, a kid that doesn't have those two parents and a loving, loving, loving family like that. But uh, you know, when, when you when you saw your dad busting his butt, right, coming home and going you know, going to build a house or two besides his normal job, and your mom cutting hair, um, you know, what, what was that like, and uh, how did that shape you? You know, I've been uh, smiling thinking about it, Gary. But uh, you know, my my dad is the hardest worker I I know, and uh, and he never, you know. My wife calls it circling like an airplane. My dad never sits still. I can't really sit around and relax if I'm watching a game I got to be doing something or you know if I'll listen to a game if I'm out in my garden I like to garden I get outside do stuff I'll walk the street and pick up trash I just I got to do something but I always frame my dad my dad is someone that to my dad and he never said this but I've heard him say things that I truly believe he believes this is there's there's two types of people in the world, hardworking and lazy. And you either work hard or you're lazy. And if you're not working to your capability, you're going to probably fall in the latter category. So my dad kept himself busy. I, uh, I don't, taking naps is something I've never been able to do unless I'm confined, like on an airplane or in a car that I just I'll fall asleep. Thankfully, not when I'm driving, but uh, I, uh, I, I get after it. I, I always bite off more than I can chew regarding work and things I want to get accomplished in a given day. But I always say my dad was as hard as working and my mom worked hard too. Don't get me wrong, but my dad, you know, he would, uh, wasn't making a lot of money, but he knew if he, the more hours he worked, he would make more and that would provide, you know, more, give it more of a cushion. It was just kind of the way it was. And, uh, I know I get my motor from him and, uh, it's given me, you know, I've, uh, I think I've taken advantage of that. Well, and with with that motor, I mean, when you when you got into this business, you know, if you can explain, you know, explain to us how you got into it. And then, well, after that, love love to hear more about the Iowa wrestling because I'm a huge Iowa wrestling fan and a Dan Gable fan. Dan, Dan Gable is the legend of all legends. So be be around that guy had to be amazing. Um, anyway, but yeah. bottom line is that if you if you can go into a little of that as well as um, you know the, the hours that you were used to working, whether it be 
when you worked in college, after college, and, and when you started in this industry and everything else. Love to hear about that. You know, I, I, uh, I always, you know, felt that, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a list writer, things I want to do, you know, and I have my list now, someday maybe lists and, you know, think priority lists and how we all find our way to kind of keep ourselves organized. And I'm by no means perfect, but I, uh, I, I've always been, uh, I remember this. My dad used to wake me up uh, in the mornings when I, I worked uh, probably from, I know I started when I was 10. I used to go all summer long with him on the job site. You know, job site. He let me off for playing, you know, little league baseball. And then a couple of summers I worked on the farm, on farms, you know, walking beans, baling hay, tiling, things like that. And, uh, and then I think when I was 12, I think I did that for a summer or two. And, uh, but it wasn't really an option for me to sit around and watch TV all day. So uh, I did that. And then from age 12, 13 on through high school and then college before I started working in Iowa City and working with the teams, I worked every summer with them. So I, I'm a, uh, I'll say it this way, I'm a pretty good carpenter by myself, but with my dad, I can do about anything. I wish I would have paid more attention when I was all those years I was working for him. But my dad used to ask me while I was working for him, he might have me in a crawl space and it's, you know, middle of July and 100 degrees and he, more than a few occasions, he would say, don't you want to do this the rest of your life? And I'm like... <laughs> I don't want to do this the rest of my life. And so uh, I know the lesson he was telling me, like, you have an option here. You, you can go to college and figure that out. I paid my own way. My parents uh, provided some money after I graduated. I think they were hedging their bet to see that I would finish. But, uh, but I, I worked through uh, college, too. And, um, and uh, you know, back then, at, I remember my, my uh, I bill for the University of Iowa, I think, was roughly $4,000 a year. My daughter's kids can't believe that, but that was 2000 in-state tuition, 2000 room and board. So you could back then, and that's one of the problems today. There's a lot of problems, but back then if I worked my tail off all summer long, I could pay for a year of college making $4,000. Now imagine finding for a kid my age or that age back then trying to make $60,000 in a given summer. It's impossible. And so, you know, things have gotten out of whack there. Big time. And I think we maybe lost Gary for just a second here, but uh, no, so I'm interested then to dive a little bit more into the Iowa wrestling. I uh, can't imagine what it was like working alongside Dan Gable, but I would imagine that there is quite a few life lessons that were learned through that process. Yeah. Athletics is, um, you know, just, there's so much can be gained. I know Gary talked about playing football and wrestling. So you got an individual sport and a team sport. And so being blessed to be able to do both, you don't have to cut weight in football and <laughs> you walk out on the wrestling mat and you see an opponent across the mat that you're going to be tussling with for, you know, six minutes, unless you've done it where you are fully invested in tearing his arms and legs off and he's trying to do the same to you. Uh, you can't really appreciate the energy that goes into that. And it's something to behold, but you know, I grew up an Iowa wrestling fan and uh, going up to the old field house and the new Carver Hawkeye arena that they still use to watch Iowa wrestling. I've been to any chance I get. I go to meets back in Iowa City. I watch it on the Big Ten Network. But uh, Dan Gable, uh, you have to know Dan Gable's story, and I could talk plenty about that. But uh, he was a coach at Iowa roughly 76 to, I think, the early 90s when he retired. He was an Olympic gold medalist in Munich in 1972. Never lost a match in uh, high school and college until his last match of his senior year at Iowa State. And uh, – they, I was there during the middle of uh, 
I think, a, a, a run of 10 straight NCAA championships. And uh, so 19, when I was around the team, it would have been 84, 83, 84 to 86. And uh, they dominated, you know, Big Tens. They won like 20 straight Big Ten titles and 10 straight NCAA titles. And they're still obviously competitive. They should have won, you know, secondary to COVID and the pandemic. They didn't have it, but they were on pace to win the uh, NCAAs this year with a wonderful team. And uh, Dan, uh, unique uh, coaching style, but uh, got the most out of his wrestlers. And uh, as an athletic trainer, I remember uh, hearing the comments around at a certain period of time, which was usually right before Big Ten's middle of February, there was no such thing as an injury. No more injuries, no matter what. You're not injured, you're healthy, we're going forward, and Big Tens are up, and uh, NCAs are next. And it wasn't that bad, but guys knew that they had to be fully committed to uh, what was coming on the schedule. Right. You, you talked a little bit about his coaching style. You want to dive a little bit more into that? And are there any overlaps from his coaching style to how you sort of projected that into your business career? You know, I, I remember him and his assistant, Jerry, Jerry Robinson, Jay Robinson, sorry, Jay Robinson, who ended up going up to Minnesota. And one of the things I remember him saying to uh, the camps, the camp wrestlers in the summers, which are hundreds, thousands of kids coming I remember them saying something to the effect of your definition of hard work and my definition of hard work are completely different. And you're going to come to understand that in the next week. And so that kind of set the tone of, of uh, no matter how hard you thought you were working or how hard you thought you were competing, there's always another level. There's always another gear. Dan used to have what they called red flag days. They were just intermittent days. If uh, something had pissed him off, upset him, uh, that uh, he didn't feel the team was coming together. They weren't working hard. They weren't fully committed. He labeled these things red flag days where our job as athletic trainers was basically to set up little Dixie cups of water where the wrestlers, you know, on a whistle could go off the mat, throw a Dixie cup of glass of water down and be back on the mat in like 10 seconds and go. And uh, you had to watch these. I mean, we worked hard in wrestling practice in high school, but I'm not sure I could have, I could have lasted with uh, what was going on there. And then I remember I, uh, I happened to be there when, they, uh, when Dan was upset. Dan Gable was upset with uh, one of his wrestlers who will remain nameless. He's a pal and uh, a great wrestler at Iowa. But I think what happened was one of his professors or uh, counselors had called Dan and basically said that, you know, either wasn't showing up for class regularly or he wasn't, you know, he was failing or wasn't, you know, doing his best, which, uh, you know, the wrestling coach doesn't want to hear that, doesn't want to be bothered with it. He wants his guys in the wrestling room eligible and competing hard, and he wants them when they're not in the wrestling room doing what they should be doing. Anyway, Dan declared that day a black flag day. He said, I'm going to exterminate you. And it was one of the hardest wrestling practices I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and so wow. I think he got it from the black flag, uh, you know, uh, roach retardant or whatever. He got the name. But uh, Dan was an amazing uh, coach. Still stay in, stays involved with uh, athletics. And one of his, uh, Tom Brands is a coach now, is one of his disciples. Tom was an Olympic wrestler, Iowa wrestler under Dan. That's insane. Yeah, I, so I actually grew up a wrestler for myself, myself as well. Not my entire life, but my older brother was a, a wrestler all through high school and ended up still staying on the club team during college. And so immediately, of course, just being the younger brother, I started following along and, 
And at the time, that was when Kale Sanderson was blowing up throughout the entire uh, United States. And obviously, his story is relatively similar to Dan Gable in terms of success. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it for sure teaches you just incredible life lessons, but then the ways that you can apply that in your professional clear career are just limitless. Mm-hmm. Uh, so through that process, then, uh, obviously, you were working alongside as a part of the athletic training team. Uh, you want to touch a little bit more on that? Yeah. Uh, so I was, uh, the way it worked was uh, you got accepted in the program and then your first full year, which was my junior year at Iowa, you worked with all the men and women's sports. Iowa had what was called at the time the model undergraduate program for athletic training in the country under Dan Foster. But there are so many people that I stay in touch with. You know, most recently when I was back in Iowa City a couple of weeks ago, I reach out to the, these men and women who are you know, in their 60s and 70s now, uh, guys like Dan Foster, John Streif, Ed Crowley, Gail Wadley, uh, John Albright was our team physician. And it speaks to Iowa's culture around that, that they uh, stay connected. And, and I want to stay connected with them because they uh, set me on a path or helped set me on a path that was important to me and gave me the career I have. But uh, you worked with all men and women's uh, sports your junior year, and then your senior year, you were assigned to one sport. I actually wanted to work with the wrestling team, but didn't get my first choice. I got assigned to the uh, football team, which ended up uh, was the 1985-86 season. And I, uh, I uh, was a, a student athletic trainer with uh, the Hawkeyes, and that was the Chuck Long, Ronnie Harmon, Larry Stage, and Big Ten championship team that uh, beat Michigan 12 to 10 in one of the, arguably the most famous game in Iowa history. Um, a little sidebar was, uh, so I'm a senior in college and I got assigned to work with football and I got to uh, fly in an airplane for the first time. Uh, we came to uh, Chicago from Iowa, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, to play the Wildcats at Northwestern in the fall of 85 and uh, beat the Wildcats that year, but uh, ran the table almost, lost one game to Ohio State, and then went on to the Rose Bowl um, and played uh, UCLA, unfortunately a tough game. But, uh, it was, you know, as a kid, as an Iowa fan, I mean, you can't, as an athletic trainer, get too caught up in the game other than taking care of the athletes. you got to do your job. But um, having the opportunity to work with the Hawkeyes, be on the field, help, you know, in some small way contribute to their success and be part of a successful team around coaches like Dan Gable or Hayden Fry or Lute Olson was back there then and Vivian Stringer was a women's basketball coach. I, I'm, I'm a, I like to soak it in. I like to, you know, I, I would say all the mentors I mentioned in athletic training and all the coaches I've worked with over the years, and I've been so blessed to have not only great, great people around me, but also just people that you can learn from and mentors that, that I, 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 challenge coach uh, people around me that I've mentored and you want to have your personal board of directors. You want to have a group of people that you're willing to leverage and ask questions for. It's going to make you so much better and smarter. And I, I was blessed with a boatload of them starting at Iowa working with the teams. And that's exactly how I feel about Gary. <laughs> it's, the, <laughs> it's seriously the same relationship that him and I have. And, and he talks a lot about mentorship and, and Gary, you want to touch on true mentors a little bit? No, you know what? Uh, you know, we, we've had a lot of fun, Mark. We, we built a, uh, a nonprofit called True Mentors, and basically put together probably half of the half the, the mentors are YPO, or fr- you know, friends of mine, YPO, and then other friends of mine in business that I've got got to be uh, uh, close to and, and become mentors to people that want to be business leaders, whether it be you know executive executive someday or or, or entrepreneurs. 
And so we uh, put them together and we had a lot of fun with it. So it's been a lot, it's been a blast, but I, I, I've done that because just like you, you know, I, my, my best education has been through other people uh, understanding their stories, their share experiences, what, what got, what, what, what enabled them to scale a business, what enabled them to create a culture that I'd want to create all the different things that, you know, we talk about for a successful business. We can learn through great stories, especially of trusted advisors that care about us. So, so I love it. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's something I'm very passionate about mess with this podcast is for as well. So, so then post-college, you jumped straight into the PT career and did you start as a, a physical therapist yourself and, and then decided you wanted to jump into starting your own business? So what happened was um, at Iowa, I, I, I finished there and I, I, I didn't know much, but I knew I loved what I was doing, working with the teams at the college division one level. And, uh, I um, also felt I had a lot to learn. So my step was if I could get a graduate assistantship, meaning I get my master's paid for at a, uh, a good program, um, then I would uh, go on and do my master's. And I got licensed as you, at that point, you can get licensed or certified as an athletic trainer. So I passed my licensing boards and then went as a licensed certified athletic trainer to the University of Arizona in Tucson and did my graduate training there, worked in, and they had a great uh, graduate program, and uh, worked with the Wildcats for two years, working with a lot of the sports, mainly football, track and field, cross country, so you get to see injury patterns, and that was all great. Uh, both of my head athletic trainers, a woman at uh, Arizona named Sue Hillman, and the gentleman I mentioned at Crowley at Iowa were also physical therapists. I didn't know, again, didn't know what an athletic trainer was before that, didn't know what a physical therapist did, but they encouraged me to go to physical therapy school. I thought that would, uh, being a physical therapist and athletic trainer might help me get not only a better income, but also uh, help me differentiate myself from others who were applying for jobs if I was dual credential, if I could get into PT school, which was hard then and it's even harder now. And uh, I, uh, I applied to several and I got into Northwestern, which ultimately was my first choice because it brought me back to Chicago. Backtracking a little bit, I had a couple roommates from Chicago at Iowa, one from Joliet, one from Downers Grove that I came back and I just fell in love with it, Chicago. I just saw it, you know, I had the Midwestern values. I felt comfortable, you know, small town guy. It's a city I felt comfortable in. And uh, I love Chicago. And then lo and behold, I meet this, this uh, partly crazy, because she married me, a Greek girl uh, at Iowa. Um, Iowa paid my room and board to move in with the football players my senior year out of an apartment. And uh, so that, you know, saved me the money uh, for room and board. So I moved into the dormitory as a senior and took help take care of the, the guys that had responsibilities that were with that. Um, and Marianne was an RA resident assistant in that same dormitory. And back then it was boy, girl, boy, girl. And I'll just say a lot of my football players used to hang around her floor and she saw me as a non-athlete administrator. So used to chew on me to get my football players off her floor, which was really the last on my to-do to -do list. I didn't really care. But that's how we met, and we've been married 32 years now, and uh, she was from uh, Joliet Tenley Park, 100% um, Greek. Her parents are wonderful people, immigrated from uh, Greece, Marianne's first gen generation, proud of her Greek heritage, as all Greeks are, and uh, uh, we have three wonderful daughters. Uh, Fotini is uh, 26 now. 26 now. Mark, did you have a big, Go ahead. You, I'm sure you're asking this a lot, but did you have a big, fat Greek wedding? 
Yeah, I could write. I could write the. I could write a mini series of that that movie. I, uh, <laughs> I, there's so many scenes in that movie that are pitch perfect accurate, and uh, and like I said, I I could uh, and I pointed them out to my wife. I mean, it's you know Iowa. What I grew up with, you know, you didn't. I hugged my grandmother, but I never hugged my mother. Or never kissed her. I do now. Uh, and it's, it's brought a lot to us, but Greeks uh, do a number of things. One of them is uh, show emotion. And I mean, they talk about, I'd sit down for a meal and I'd finished it before they were done talking about how great the salad was. And uh, <laughs> my dad and I were out the door. We had things to do. And so uh, it's brought a good balance. Uh, Greeks are fun people, but yeah, that, that movie is spot on. Yeah, I've been a, I've been a few Greek weddings, and uh, boy, they are so so much like the movie. It's, it's a blast. I love going. It's almost like a, it's almost like you're going to like a musical or something like that. It's it, like like they're they're imitating what it's supposed to be like, but it is what it is. It's amazing. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And uh, and so uh, when you when you started, you know, you talk about as I do as well. I love I love uh, thinking about how to how do I differentiate like. You know, I, th I think individually, how do you differentiate so that so that great great gal want, you know wanted you as her as her partner for life, right? How do you differentiate so that 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 great team wanted you on that team, right? Doing doing what you did as a trainer. How do you differentiate differentiate when you start that first business? And I mean, so differentiation to me, I, I was often called different by often by people. They say that guy's a little different, boys. He's got, he's, uh, something's loose upstairs, but he's a fun guy, right? I mean, people, would be, you know, to my face or behind my back would say, yeah, he's a different type of guy, that Rayvine guy, right? But I believe that in life, if you're like everybody else, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to stand out very much. If you're, if you're serving a customer like everybody else, you're probably not going to, not going to stand out very much. You're going to be commoditized often, right? Mm -hmm. So when, when you, you speak of differentiation a lot, so I'd love to hear you know, when you started, what what did you think of when you started this business, a small business in Chicago? What what was your goal? Just to just to be in business? Were there some things you thought you could do differently than other people back then? Uh, explain that a bit for us, if you could. Yeah. So after my physical therapy school at Northwestern, that was 1989. I, I took a job. It was where my wife and I were living in a garden level apartment in the city of Chicago, which means that we were living in a basement, and uh, we had there was a physical therapy clinic a couple blocks away, and uh, I a job there I interviewed other places but I took a job and it was a good place uh, two partners were running it and they had opened a second site during the time I was there they were having I would call differences of opinion and I was sitting watching that they weren't necessarily getting along which they ended up splitting up shortly after I left and uh, but I was there for two years and and I remember coming home once uh, Gary to my to Marianne my wife and uh I said, you know, they've had so much turnover here and now I'm running, I was literally running, managing one of their the facilities, you know, a year out of school, I'm managing people and learning like HR capabilities, things like that. And uh, some other um, skills that would, I didn't even realize I was learning that would help me later on. But uh, they were, uh, I, I came home and told Marianne, you know, if, if, uh, if uh, I keep my, you know, head down and, and keep moving forward, you know, these, these, these guys, because of their problems and they're trying to grow, are going to have to make me a partner or something more than I am. And my wife quickly said, to her credit, why do you want to be their partner if you don't respect them? And I'm like, okay, yeah, you're right. And so that's ultimately what led to Athletico. And uh, so I started thinking about that in 91. Uh, to differentiation, you know, I, there's some things that I, I didn't feel I wanted to do 
I wanted to do uh, personally and uh, because it was my background, selfishly, I wanted to get out of the clinic, meaning I wanted to get out in the field and work with kids, work with athletes. I had started a little outreach program back then and, and going out. And what I used to do, like working with Division One athletes, I thought, well, I want to be a Division One athletic trainer. Well, then I started realizing when I was working with high school kids, I just loved working with athletes. And I worked with club sports, rugby, and things like that. I just, there's not been a team I haven't enjoyed uh, contributing to or being part of and getting something back from it. And uh, so I started doing that. And uh, my my supervisors weren't too you know, overly, uh, I guess, supportive of it. I didn't really know. And I didn't know, you know, what it could bring to a business or a, a clinic, but, uh, it truly became a differentiator because I was so used to working with physicians, working with, uh, out in the field, so to speak, evaluating injuries, determining what they are, who, what doctors should see the particular injury. So then through those, uh, a lot of coverages going out at nights, going out. Remember, no kids yet. I had no, other, you know, I wanted to work. It was like my dad. I wanted to get out in the field. I wasn't going to go home and sit around. So I'd, after work, I'd go out and work in the high schools. On weekends, I'd cover rugby games or high school games. So then I'd get my hands on these injuries. Now, what do you do with them? Some of them I could take care of, you know, triage them, take care of them, provide acute care, refer them to an emergency room if they had to go. But others, they didn't necessarily have to go to the emergency room, but yet I, had to get them on the right path to get them back and get them healthy. And so then I did started developing a network of physicians. Who's the best knee doctor? Who's the best shoulder doctor? Who's the best foot and ankle spine, stuff like that. And there's options. There's, you know, Chicago, you're blessed with a lot of great institutions and healthcare facilities and a lot of great physicians. But uh, I started referring, you know, Gary and his injured wrestling shoulder to so-and-so uh, for a uh, shoulder specialist. And I got him in, I made sure, the insurance was covered. I made sure it was a convenient location. It might be where he's doctored before. It might be a group he's doctored with, but then I would send a letter with him or I'd go on the appointment with the athlete and just kind of run through the history, what I saw in the field, how he injured it, what he did, my evaluation, what I thought was going on. It was good enough to be right most of the time. And, uh, and these doctors started, you know, I sent even them patients and they're calling me like, who are you and what are you doing? And uh, because no one does that. And so it wasn't big back then. There were schools that had athletic trainers, but there weren't ones that I think that were taking it to the level of detail that we, me, Athletico, and how we do it, where we were make you know, it wasn't just giving you a name and here's a list of doctors you can go see. I would set up the appointment. I'd go on the appointment. I'd send a note back oh. then, or you know. And, uh, and it just provided, I think, uh, a soup to nuts kind of uh, platform for us. That, that was one of the ways we were differentiated. Other simple ways were, you know, I was there at six in the morning and be there till nine at night. We were open on Saturdays. A lot of facilities weren't. Um, all of our patients, I'd say 90% of them were working and they couldn't come in in the middle of the day, but they could come in at five o'clock at night or six o'clock at night or on a Saturday morning. And so I think they found it that convenient and the physicians like that, that we would get patients in as soon as they'd shoot them over. If they did uh, knee surgery or something on a patient, then we would get them in right away versus making them wait until next week because that ultimately reflects poorly on their care if they're not getting back as quickly as they could. So there were some, you know, differentiation differentiators that uh, I didn't know what I, I only did because I thought I, I uh, needed to do it um, and I wanted to do it that way. But there is also the, the, I call it the fear of failure factor that, uh, you know, I borrowed, I think I borrowed $40,000 from my parents, uh, 60000 from my Greek in-laws, 
and uh, another sixty thousand dollars from a college roommate of mine. That uh, that's how I that's how I funded Athletico because no bank would give money back in '91 to a startup business in the horrible markets we were in back then. So that was the uh, that was the cash flow that started Athletico. Now, did you give all those guys equity or what? No, I paid him. I gave him a, a great. <laughs> you remember, I bought. I think I bought my first house in 1990. I think my ins- my interest rate on the first mortgage was like 12 percent. Can people don't remember that? I mean, but you do. And uh, I, I think uh, I'll say that I I exceeded that number and gave them a very good interest rate. And they were and uh, I was no. Uh, I did it for many years, um, meaning well beyond when I had to. I would just send them their monthly interest check and. Uh, and they held the principal for a long time, and uh, I think they were very happy with their rate of return, and I needed the money, so it worked out. <laughs> but now I bet they're saying, man, we should should have gotten some, we just forgot, forget about past back, we just want a couple points in this business, right? Yeah, well, there's a number <laughs> of people that say that. What I did do, and I think it was the right model at the time, and it certainly certainly worked for us, that I saw, you know, kind of through my story of my first job, I saw the, uh, you know, I, I, I was a physical therapist and did a good job. And we've had so many men and women that have done great jobs for us and still do great jobs for us. But uh, back then, I, with what I, way I did it was we opened another center and then that center's manager could buy in equity into that facility. And so mm-hmm. they became a true partner. And if their center performed well, based on performance, there's some factors involved. They could buy up, you know, another 5%, 10%. So you generally start with 10% of the equity and buy up 5, 10. So they, and a lot of them would own up to 30% of that center. And then we developed a regional manager level where a regional manager would own, you know, 30% of their center and they could own 10% of, of uh, any of the centers in their region, which, simply said meant there was 40% of the equity at play that the, the leadership team for the region and the center managers could, uh, could buy. And they paid, you know, fair market value, but it was reduction on the number that made it easier. I loaned them the money or signed off on the loan, co-signed the loan at Citibank, we banked with back then. And uh, it was very easy because there's a lot of these were like me, college kids that couldn't go out. They might have bought their first condo, had their first child, but they couldn't go out and borrow $100,000 from a bank. And so um, when we did our first uh, private equity deal, I think I had 78, 78 uh, partners in the business. And uh, wow. obviously they did very well um, over time, and as did I. And uh, and it was a proud moment. But uh, when you have equity in the business, you uh, you care about when the lights go on. How fun is that, right? To be able to see that, to be able to be, to be part of something that that uh, was a blessing to so many lives, right? Through yeah. through hard work and and uh, serving your customers at, at a high level, and, uh, you know, rewards happen. That's awesome. Now, yeah. when 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 you do that, Mark, I've had some experience with it as well. Um, and, and uh, it doesn't always go right. I mean, at first they look, it looks like the right person. And when it doesn't work out, what, 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 did, what did you do when you had a few of those that, that weren't, you know, maybe the work ethic wasn't what, what you thought, or maybe something else got in the way in their lives, right? To change the, how they wanted to approach your work um, and your customers. What, what, yeah. what was your out as a, as a company if you had a, you know, one that, a person that just wasn't quite as passionate as you wanted to be and you had to move on? Had to move on. 
Well, the uh, for, that's a good question. Legal, legally, the structure and the partnership agreements, you know, I don't want to say I was king, but I was king and long live the king. I had, I had right to do that. And they had to trust me and I had to trust them. So that, that worked pretty well to help us uh, protect the company. But I'll tell you this, the, uh, Gary, the first partner I had, uh, I'll just say it was our second, second clinic. And uh, he just did some things that left me no option. And I remember thinking, you know, first, oh, that's really stupid. Why would he do that? And then my second thought, disappointingly to me, was, what, what if what he did ended up on the front page of the Tribune? Our, our brand, our reputation would be ruined. So it made a very easy decision that I had to terminate him and let him go. And that was my first partner. Lucky uh, for me, and I think for our partners, that I got beyond that very quickly and said, I think the model's still the right model. I just had the wrong person. And so I did a little, and sure. this person was a good therapist and good at what he did. He just uh, had some personal uh, flaws, I'll say, that, that led to his undoing. And so I learned a harsh lesson there and uh, did a better job with my, I call it diligence and getting to know people. And uh, I'm a trusting guy. Again, I think it probably comes from small town Iowa a little bit, but uh, you just don't expect people to do things they do. But, you know, been around long enough. I don't get surprised as much as I used to where I never saw that one coming. And uh, those things don't happen as me. I think I've seen most of it all, but there's always still some things that, you know, people make decisions that uh, you have to be, they have to be challenged. But, uh, you know, those early lessons, like I said, my first partner is one that I had to let go. And I luckily and thoughtfully got beyond that to where we, you know, we grew through that. And, uh, but I remember the headaches associated with that. But I'll say this, that, you know, anytime I've had those, what you might call hard decisions or whatever, that's just a label. We make it hard when, frankly, when we, we know we're doing the right thing and it's the right thing for uh, the company and the business, and it might be the right thing for that person that they need to be removed. It makes, it's made the decision sure. much easier sure. for me. You know, yeah, yeah, you know, and, and when I when I look back, and you know, I, I think as we, as we get into our fifties and all that, I think we start to get a little wiser, hopefully, and 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 we learn a lot of lessons over the the, the past you know decades to to hopefully carry us through the next decades and. And hopefully we can mentor and share experiences that, 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 you know, we can, we can help other people avoid some of these pitfalls. But you know, one, one thing I would say is, you know, when I was a young guy making, making mistakes and, and, and hiring or making mistakes in equity or whatever it was, I, I, I would like, man, that hurt. I trust that person. It just didn't work out. They, they didn't, you know, they didn't really respect the relationship as much as I thought they'd whatever happened. Right. I, I was a little bit, uh, a little bit disheartened for a little while. And I'd have friends of mine that were in business around me that were my mentors back then, small business people that really weren't growing would say, that's why I don't trust anybody. Right. That's why you don't, you know, you're not supposed to become friends with your, with your employees. Right. And you don't, you got to stop trusting people so much. Right. And then, and then you, you think a little further past that and realize that's not the right thing either. Right. I mean, you got to trust people and that, and yet that small town mentality you have, and I have too as well. Um, I trust everybody, and and, and I know that I, I'm, I'm prepared that that I, I might I might lose trust with some people, but if I do the right due diligence and I think that people have the right character values, right, um, I'm right more often than I'm not, way more often than I'm not that I can trust most of the people that I that I think I can. Now again, you got to be ready for that for that person that that for some reason uh, isn't aligned like like they thought they, you thought there were and stuff, but 
I think overall, if you can constantly trust, people will trust you. If you don't trust, people won't trust you. It's pretty easy, right? If you, you can see that the person trusts you and then you'll therefore trust them. So I think, you know, in, in business and in life and leadership, especially if you're scaling mind like you are, um, uh, you, I think you, you have to trust, right? And, and you know, you got to be ready that, that you put all the right stuff in place that if the trust isn't there in the long run, that there's decisions you can make to, to, to separate and move on. So uh, I, I, I like how you talked about that because it definitely, uh, it definitely hit home, hits home for me, right? And that uh, you're going to, you know, as you grow a business, you have hundreds of, hundreds of teammates. Um, not all of them are going to be a perfect fit as you grow. So, yeah, um, the cool. people relationship. We're and people when, when you think about, uh, when you think about how you scale, when you think about how you scaled, Mark, I mean, you know, what, what was the secret to scaling? You know, it took, it took you 10 years to, to, to get to those, you know, the, that, uh, uh, would you have 10 by 10, 10 within nine years, I guess, 10 locations yeah. in nine years. Yeah. Um, and now you're growing crazy. Um, what, uh, what allows you to scale like you couldn't before? I mean, I'm sure money and, 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 uh, uh, that kind of thing is a big part of it, but what else, what else, uh, is important to scale consistently and successfully compared to those first years where you may have tried to scale and, and had some pitfalls as you learn, right? Yeah. Well, we, uh, a few things happened. I mean, in the early days, we, we were basically operating each business as a separate unit. And uh, when we had, I think, our sixth, seventh location, we paused for our growth, our huge growth spurt. But uh, we only had six locations, but we, had a, we created a corporate office billing center so we could support all, this, all the offices. And so we did that in LaGrange, uh, LaGrange Park, Illinois, and uh, that was our first corporate office. We since now call it the resource center. We don't like the uh, corporate uh, tagline, but uh, we did that in around 96, 97. And that gave us, uh, you know, the platform to grow from. Obviously we didn't anticipate going into the hundreds. We were looking to support, you know, I, by then I probably thought we'd have 10 to 20 centers. And uh, we got to that level. We were probably uh, 25 locations in the mid uh, 2000s and, by the end of that decade, 2010, I, like I said, I think we had around 60 locations. By then, and I think it was 2003, we built a bigger corporate, we got a, a move to a bigger corporate office in Oak Brook, Illinois, moved our billing collection center there, and all started to have all the corporate functions uh, work out of uh, the resource center in Oak Brook. Today, I'm in our new offices. We just moved in uh, in Oak Brook a few blocks away because we outgrew that, that location. But you know, we were growing, growing along. We were probably opening three to five centers a year, and I probably went to six to eight. But uh, I remember talking with the, uh, the the partnership, so to speak, and our, our field leaders, and I just said, you know, there's groups that are growing faster than us. They're you know, taking on debt to do it, or they're uh, attaching to a strategic partner or what have you. And, and I said, I believe in what we're doing. We're, we're beating in every market we're in, which is mainly in Illinois. By then, we'd opened, I think, in uh, Northwest Indiana, Indianapolis, and probably Milwaukee. But in every market we were in, we were competitive and, and really strong, obviously, in Illinois, where we started. But I just said to the team, I said, you know, you know me well enough. I started with one center, and that was my plan. And now here we are with 30, 50 centers. Do you want to do this? Because it's going to require all us to step up, step up our game, and we're going to be growing at a different level. And if we take on debt or bring on a private equity partner, that's going to take on an even more intense level. Um, but I felt for us to continue to grow, we were going to have to do some acquisitions. We're going to have to grow at a faster pace because what I saw happening was not only in the markets we were in, but the markets we wanted to go to, that companies like ours were springing up, being competitive, 
And, uh, you know, if we wait around five, 10 years, we're going to be behind the eight ball, so to speak, that uh, we're going to have a steeper hill to climb. So we either decide we're going to be a mid-sized, smaller uh, physical therapy company or we're going to grow. And, that, and we obviously decided to grow. Now we're in the top three or four or five in the country, um, depending on how you want to measure us. But uh, uh, the team pulled together and uh, we, we took on, we, like I said earlier, we had 100 centers, I think, when we did a deal with uh, Harvest Partners in um, May of 2014. And uh, I'm still here to tell about it, but then we did our first acquisition. So imagine this, Gary, we had 100 locations in 2014 we did our first acquisition and later that year, the end of 2014 of a company called accelerated who was based out of Chicago. They had, uh, we had about 1500 employees. They had around 2,500 employees and around 240 centers and we acquired them. So we bit off. Wow. Uh, we over doubled our size and went from 1500 employees to 4,000 overnight. And, uh, and then we had to integrate that and make it successful and we did a great job the team on accelerated side our side i think we pulled together in good form and uh did that integration over the next year to two years brought on some people that we needed for their expertise to help us through that and again i'm still standing or sitting now to talk about it but uh you want to learn about m a overnight uh that's probably the way to do it and i wouldn't recommend it you know my plan was to acquire some smaller groups in some of the areas we were, I was looking to get into. And our partners brought up that bad option and some options like Accelerated being the biggest uh, apple on the tree, so to speak, because they had operations in St. Louis, Indianapolis, uh, Michigan, Iowa. I wanted to get into Iowa for the obvious reasons. And uh, so they were already, to their credit, they had already done some acquisitions. They just never really fully integrated them, which can lead to our culture discussion. But uh, we, uh, we did do the acquisition in the end of uh, 2014. And, uh, you know, that put us up from 100 sites to 350 overnight. So that was a big, big wow. thing to swallow. Well, and and you mentioned, you just mentioned it, Mark, but yeah, that's, that's what I think about when I think about this, right? So we, we bought some, some small companies and we've, we've grown in other markets and stuff. And boy, the, the biggest challenge always, and nothing, we've done nothing like this before, like you're talking about, right? What, what's, uh, what is it like to, to understand, you know, you're the, the organically how you grew and you created the core values you believe in and hired by the core values and fired by the core values right now. Now you take on an organization bigger than yourself who has their own core values, their own culture, right? Probably a little different than yours. Right. What, what was that like? I, I, I mean, actually took on your name, right? And, and then tell us about that. Yeah, and that was, that was part of it too, because you know, there was parts of their organization. They, they'd done, for example, an acquisition of pro-PT, pro-physical therapy down in uh, St. Louis, accelerated and acquired them in 08. And then lo and behold, we show up in, in 2014 and it's still pro-physical therapy. So the good and bad of it was, Accelerated acquired some great groups, but they never fully worked to integrate them. I think they took a easier path and they just kind of kept them along for the ride, kept everybody happy. No one was ever told no or whatever. And then we show up and now it's our job to not only integrate Accelerated, but also integrate the companies they had acquired over the last five to 10 years. And so you're talking, you know, what I was excited about was looking at, I'm a guy, I'm pretty collaborative, open-minded guy. I was excited to look at all the things I thought Accelerated did well, learn from that, look at how we do them and do it better, right? And then mm -hmm. figured out that, you know, instead of looking at their culture and our culture and comparing what's good and bad about each or what it could be better, we were looking at about 
you know, six to 10 cultures going on within Accelerated and trying to land on one and trying to understand it was, was difficult. But where we took a step back and I'm not saying by any stretch we did everything perfect, but we, we quickly realized a couple things. One, there was a lot of great people there that were committed physical therapists and wanted to do things as, as good as anyone, just like we did. And uh, we had to make those, uh, I'll call them loyal relationships, where they, they believed, you know, what I said or what we said, and we would honor that and uh, work with them and support them. And we may not always agree, but we would explain if there's a difference of opinion, we'd try to come together. And, uh, and we got, you know, I heard it over and over again. One thing I was saying, you know, when I, when I was going out uh, to the field, all the site visits on the roadshow or town hall meetings, the one thing that I have a lot of memories from that, those meetings, but the one thing that stood out was that uh, every, at every meeting at the end, when I'd ask for questions or anything I could answer or talk about me or the business or history or whatever, someone would raise their hand and just say, thank you. Thank you for coming out and meeting with us. Cause that's something that the previous leadership just didn't do. And uh, it taught me not only was it a good thing to go out and do it, but I, I was coming back and I made it back to those field. And I, I love, I mean, I'm an, I'm, a, I'm an operator at heart. I love being in the field. I love walking into clinics and you know, it's fun still to walk in unannounced and they see me and not everyone knows who I am now, but uh, they'll walk in and just, Start chatting with people and, and uh, do the surprise visit, but uh, usually I bring treats. But uh, the people were really appreciative that that I would take the time, and uh, and it felt, you know, we as a leadership team, we talked about we have to get out and meet these people and and talk to them, or you know, there's just too much risk we could lose lose the field because we are in a people business. How different were the core values, Mark, from from yours to the to the to the new companies that you, so that, that you required? You know, they, they had a lot of, uh, they had, I think they had what Athletico had in our early, you know, our first 10 to 15 years of business. And, uh, and it was a person I met through uh, YPO. I don't know if you ever came across a gentleman named Jim Dethmer, uh, Conscious Leadership Group. Um, and he was a facilitator for my forum. And uh, I met him and I thought, I didn't honestly, it was my early days as a forum member at YPO. And I'm just sitting around with the guys and gals and talking and I thought he was another business leader that was uh, part of our forum. And then I, he started poking and prodding, asking questions and challenging people in a way I'd never seen before. And I'm like, Hmm, that, that'd be really interesting. So I was smart enough, I think, to bring Jim to our leadership team meeting. I just asked him, I'm not sure what I asked him that first meeting. I actually came across the agenda. I could dig it out at some point, but, uh, I brought him to a meeting to talk about a certain subject and it was probably leadership related or what have you. And I remember seeing him during the meeting. So we had, I'll say a three hour meeting and he was going to do the last 40 minutes or something. And uh, so he gets up and before he even starts talking about what he was, his subject matter, he said, you know, it's been really interesting. I've been here for an hour or so. And I, I see, you know, what I would call the most important people in the room are the most important people for Athletico and what you're doing from, from my vantage point is you're talking through your numbers and your results and all the things and you're delivering a lot of information when you should be using this time to talk about the deepest, most important things that are going to lead to your level of success or what are the, the most crucial things you guys should be talking about right now? Because you could deliver that in a PDF and tell everybody I read it and just assume it versus showing all those PowerPoints and results and patients cared for and new patients delivered or what have you. 
And so, of course, I'm stand, standing there off to the side feeling like a jackass that the guy just uh, called me out. But it was the best thing for us. So what that led to was almost a complete reversal or transformation of the meeting where we spent, you know, if it was a three-hour meeting, we might have spent a half hour to 45 minutes just going through results and expectations. But then we went into what are we about? You know, how do we refine our service? What does our culture feel like? And he, Jim and team, led us through an exercise where we identified our core values at the time, and that was probably, I'm going to say 2008 or so. So we had been, we'd been at it 15, 16, 17 years. And we didn't, you know, we accelerated. His mantra was putting patients first. And we, ours was get people back fast or whatever. You know, we had our taglines and advertising and things like that. But did we really sit and talk about what are our core values? And that was an interesting exercise. We had, you know, 100 people in the room. If one person raised their hand against any proposed core value, it was off the chart. And so we started getting like you and I would get together and we come up with our top 10 and then we get together with four more and talk to narrow it down to six. And we came up and we ended up with, I'll, I'll say 15 to 20 values on the, on the screen with all of us in front of them. And we landed on, we landed on four. Uh, we landed on patient services. Number one, accountability, being accountable for our work and everything. We are we're accountable for everything in our life, uh, continuous improvement and teamwork. Those were our four core values. And uh, we've since done some work now. We call it our pact at Athletico now, which incorporated that and some other things we wanted to focus on. But I got to tell you, those four were important for me because, you know, if I was, whatever, in a funk, dealing with a difficult decision, whatever, I, I'd eventually get to, you know, how does this decision, how does this problem, uh, how is it impacted by our core values? And when you say, okay, how does this issue impact patient service? Who's accountable? How does it affect us getting better or how does it affect our team? You know, the answers became pretty self-evident pretty quickly. And uh, we landed on those and uh, we talked. I mean, it wasn't an easy process, so to speak. We used them in our language. We had expectations of rolling them out to the entire team. And there was a little of that touchy-feely culture stuff, whatever you want to call it or put a label on it. But I got to tell you, Gary, it was, uh, it was an important milestone for us because it gave us a a feeling of we're all in this together and we're, you know, it was at the same time when we're about to embark on a you know, huge growth spurt. And uh, many times through that integration, you know, and I'm sitting there with uh, going through the accelerated integration from 14 to 16, trying to figure out, you know, sleepless nights, trying to figure out, am I doing this right? And what am I missing? You know, to have the comfort of our culture while we're trying to identify what was the best of accelerated's culture and, but we could fall back on our own and, and get most things right was really helpful. But that was a great exercise for us. And Jim Dethmer did a fantastic job. I, I like that you did it in four instead of five or six. I mean, some, you know, some people have uh, seven or eight or more, right? And it, uh, yeah. it's, it's uh, I, I think that the uh, more concise you can be with, with three, four, five, um, heck, heck of a lot easier to remember and, uh, and live by, right? So that's uh, four, is, four is a great number. My four, we have five, but four is a great number, and I and I wish I could you know get down to four. But uh, you, you mentioned you mentioned uh, you know Jim there and stuff. You also mentioned a guy named Dan Foster as a guy that you looked up. That, that name sounds so familiar, and I can't uh, I can't place it. Is he is he a, a mentor today to many leaders and stuff? Is he somebody that coaches in a in a, in a big way or something? Because I know that name really well. I just can't uh, can't picture him. No, he probably, I mean, Dan's retired now. Dan's in his mid-70s. He's, uh, he was an athletic trainer that, you know, right now he's reading the classics and he sends out emails, you know, 
summarizing Canterbury Tales and Shakespeare. <laughs> he said, Dan, oh, okay. smartest, one of the smartest guys I know. I keep him close to me. He's actually going to my place in Arizona and staying in my home in a couple of weeks. Uh, but uh, he, um, he and many others, you know, I, 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 working at Iowa, just watching that group of people, and I mentioned them earlier, John Streif, Ed Crowley, Faye Thompson, Gail Wadley, Ed Gregory, Dan Foster, different roles, different people, our team position. Uh, he made me proud to be an athletic trainer. John Albright said, this is an athletic trainer-based sports medicine services at Iowa, and without the athletic trainers on the front lines, we wouldn't be successful. And, and that felt, as a student trainer, you know, that felt really good. But Dan, Dan was a great, like I said, smart guy, patient guy. He's the one who was our direct contact with a bunch of students that we didn't go off the reservation and get in trouble or do everything. We were doing our job effectively and preparing us through our professional training to graduate from the program and get licensed as an athletic trainer, which if we fail that, those licensing exams, then he's failed. Right. Um, when, when you... Uh... So, so when you look at all you know, all these teammates, and you, let's, what, how, is it 5,000 today or 6,000 today? How many all together now? I, I don't look at our payroll numbers every week for a good, no, good reason. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the number is somewhere north of 5,000. We're around 5,500 uh, team members at Athletico. What is that? And what is the uh, what is the composition of that? How many, uh, how many physical therapists? How many administrators? Oh, you're putting me on the spot. So we, um, we probably are around yeah, I'm, I'm going to guess. It's probably, uh, I'll be close. There's probably uh, 1,600 to 1,800 physical therapists and occupational therapists. Those are people who work primarily with upper extremities and hand. We have about 400 athletic trainers. You know, a large chunk of our employees, uh, I hope they become future employees on a full-time basis. There's a lot of part-time uh, interns, aides that help support. You know, there are people that want to go into physical therapy or occupational therapy or athletic training that assist in the clinics. And it might be paperwork, documentation, keeping the place clean, kind of like a student trainer does at the university. Yep. Um, and then we have our uh, billing and collection center for managing our our, our reimbursements. You know, we're in a, we deal with all the insurance payers. And, uh, but we have around 5,500 employees. I would guess around 2,000, half of them are licensed professionals that are, are uh, working with, you know, interfacing with, you know, the most important relationship we have, the interface between the patient and the therapist. Okay. When, when, you, when you look at, when you look at, uh, you know, early on, I mean, did you, is there anybody out there you saw that was like you today or, you know, somebody that, let's say had a, you know, 10 clinics or 20 clinics that you look, look up to at any time and say, Someday I want to be like them, or and today do you look at another industry? How do you aspire and and or in, inspire your team around you to constantly reach and reach and reach like you guys have done? Well, I think our value of continuous improvement. I the mantra I always had as CEO of Athletico was, you know, I think we do everything well. I think we do a lot of things better than others, but there's not one thing, you know name me one thing we can't get better at and we can always improve. We can always get better. And with, and if, if we don't, we're you on know, the old adage, you're either getting better or you're getting worse. You're never standing still. So if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. And so I, I took that approach. I think the team, uh, you know, reacted positively and, you know, they're the ones that helped us uh, fuel the growth, but um, that's kind of uh, the way I, I've looked at, uh, our scaling and ability to grow and, and how we did it. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I can only say it's worked for us. Is there anybody out there you look at, you don't have to name the, the competitors, is there anybody out there you look at and say, 
you know, we're still out to, to kick their butt and be big, you know, better than them, bigger, bigger, better, oh, yeah. stronger than them. Yeah, there's, uh, there's companies, it's ironic, there's Excel, you know, I, back then in the early 90s, they had these things called phone books, you know, so I wanted to be an A and that would, uh, you know, people ask how I got the name Athletico. It's actually a Greek word from uh, word athlete is Athleticos, but it didn't come from my wife. She never gave me, I got it from a patient whose husband was a priest and I was telling him what I was doing and he brought some names in and I remember looking at, at the word Athleticos chopping the S off and I wanted a word that began with A. So that became our name. But uh, then, then uh, you know, a company called Accelerated, which we acquired, was a competitor. And, uh, and then another one called ATI, Athletic Therapeutic Institute, was they all based three companies that began with A. We were the first, but the three companies began with A uh, all started in the Chicagoland area. Um, ATI, as I was always said, have kept me, uh, I mean, they have some interesting business practices. They're very aggressive. Uh, they've done very well and they've grown. Um, they're bigger than we are, uh, right now because they've done a number of deals and a lot of acquisitions. I think, uh, we are obviously, I feel we're the better company uh, for a lot of reasons, but, uh, uh, they, they kept my saw pretty sharp. When you mentioned people I've, I've looked at, maybe admired or, you know, just kind of held up uh, myself to, you know, there's a gentleman, Pat Croce. I don't know if you remember that name. He was a guy who was ended up being, he was a physical therapist, athletic trainer, worked for a clinic, started a company, eventually sold the company. This guy's a wild man. He was like, I think he was in a huge, mad motor, motorcycle accident. He was GM of the, uh, of the Philadelphia 76ers. He became an owner because they sold to Comcast and he did, he did very well, but he, he, he read a book, uh, he wrote a book, uh, gosh, I wouldn't, uh, can't remember exactly. I, I could never get through the book. It drove me crazy because here's a book by a guy that was a physical therapist, started his own business, but he had this tough guy persona and all he did was, you know, he guy would look at him wrong on the, he was also a black belt and he just beat the tar out of the guy. And that was kind of what this book taught me and I couldn't get anything out of it. But uh, there are a number of people I remember reading. I read all the business books I could back in the day because I, I, I didn't have any formal business training. And so uh, the one I remember was a book about uh, Smith and Hawken was a gardening tool company and uh, had a mail order service. And one of the, one of the themes of that book was from the authors, the business founders was stick to what you know and do it well and do it a lot because uh, you can't, you, me, we can't be, accountants, lawyers, real estate experts, finance people, and good physical therapists, athletic trainers. I figured out early on, I need to hire good people around me, hire a good accountant, hire a good banker, hire a good uh, lawyer, and, uh, and do what I do well, and do it a lot. And uh, that's uh, one lesson learned from some of those resources. Yeah, they say it takes ten thousand hours, right, to be an expert in anything, basically, right? So you, you don't have that much time in your life to be an expert at everything. You can, you, know, you can pick a couple things, one things preferably, and maybe you know maybe a, some type of a, a fun thing you might do to be, try to be an expert besides your business. But otherwise, you're right. I mean, you try try to get too many things, you're just not going to go very far. And yeah. I've learned that the hard way, actually, Mark, and and jumping into business I shouldn't have been in, right? Um, yeah. But today, you know, today, today we serve the same customers. Uh, we're in an industry we're, we're pretty specific to industries for us, facilities and utilities. And so that, that's, that helps a lot. It keeps us focused on, you know, are we serving our customers or are we going another direction compared to in the past? So 
Um, I, I agree 100%. You know, stick with, you, with what you know and, and, and be an expert at it. Be the best at it, right? Strive to be world-class. And, and you guys are an example of that. I mean, world-class, if you're in the top three or four in the, in the country and what you do, man, you're, you're a world-class company, which is a blast to think about, right? And then think about everybody, all, these, all these people that look up to you and say, man, I want to do it like Mark did and like Athletico did, right? It's kind of, it's kind of a thing, and that probably keeps you, keeps you hungry, right? Hungry dogs run faster. And for sure, right? You you have not stopped being hungry, and 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 that's the reason you're still at the helm of this business. Yeah. So it's got it's got to be fun, but it's got to be tough keeping up with you if you're if you're working in your organization, looking up to you can't be that easy for most people, I'm guessing. Yeah. So we have yeah. a lot of great leaders yeah. around the company, yeah. thankfully. So so what's your what's your uh, what do you want what, what do you see the next ten years for for Athletico and for Mark Coffin? You know, um, to that point, you know, I I, I stepped into. Um, and be another complete different conversation. A year ago, I, I stepped into the chairman role and, uh, and we hired a new CEO to run the day-to-day -day business. And I made that decision for a number of reasons. It was coming for a while. Um, I, I wanted one, to stay involved with the business. I was doing more of the things I would call I didn't enjoy and less of the things I thought I was good at. And uh, 500, you know, being the guy that went from zero clinic or one clinic to 520 was one thing. But as I told our partners, I'm not sure I will be the best guy uh, recognizing my, my strengths and my weaknesses, be the best guy to take it to a thousand clinics. And we're on a track to, to do that, to be the biggest, to be the best. And we have uh, a lot of things going. So um, I, we identified what I felt was some of the areas that uh, we wanted a healthcare person, person at scale, person who can do some things, allow me to dig into more of, I'll call it uh, M&A industry stuff, uh, some of the culture operations thing, and then also, which is big in our industry, is recruiting, education, work, being out in the field. And those are just some of the areas I wasn't doing a lot and uh, was ready to step in and do that. So still in the office practically every day, still working hard, still contributing, I think, in a better way. Probably have a smile on my face more than I did um, a year ago. And unfortunately, during the pandemic, uh, you know, the teams had to rise up where, you know, we were seen as an essential business, yet uh, having to, you know, go through a complete transformation around how we treat our patients and be safe for our, both our staff and our, and our patients has been something to be very proud at and watch. But uh, for the next 10 years, I, I'd like to see ourselves continue to grow and be what I would see the, the best uh, provider of outpatient physical therapists. I've, I've always had the the theme uh, or adage uh, for our business that I, I don't necessarily want to be the biggest. I only want to be the best operating outpatient rehab country in the world. And so I never thought, you know, back when we were 20 sites, I had that same vision, you know, that I wanted to be the best. And, uh, and there's ways that we can do that. And I think back to what I said earlier, I think we do things as good as any, name a competitor, I think we do things as good as any and many things better. But if we're always trying to get better, I think that'll serve us well. Uh, healthcare is an interesting animal right now. Um, Athletico being in the, I call it conservative, non-invasive uh, treatment realm of uh, if we get our hands on these patients with, with things like direct access to patients and where we don't, they don't necessarily need to see a physician before they see us and we're out in the fields and working games and things like that provide other pathways to get into our centers. But uh we are, we are in a good position, physical therapy I'm talking about, in a good position to really uh, change the healthcare paradigm, bend the healthcare cost curve in a big way. Because if, 
I believe if you have any patient in pain, meaning joint pain, neck pain, back pain, shoulder pain, knee pain, low, low back, whatever, hip, uh, you get them in the hands of the physical therapist early and give them half a dozen visits and get them on. We'll find out pretty quickly, a good physical therapist find out pretty quickly, I can get this person better and get them back to full, full strength, full function, full capacity. Or maybe there's some I can't. But I challenge you and I challenge our therapists to, you know, you get all those people back that you can and teach them what physical therapy can do. You avoid all the downstream healthcare costs of opioids, huge topic today, imaging, MRIs, x-rays, surgery, for crying out loud, injections, things like that. And we can get them. And uh, we as, I don't think us as physical therapists have done a good job marking ourselves as the, the uh, the tip of the spear for some of these uh, things. And I think we, we have a lot of uh, availability for success down the road from that. No, I, absolutely. I mean, you think about the, the interaction a patient has with a doctor, and I, you know, we've been through this lately with my wife's uh, health and, and some other stuff. And, uh, you know, you interaction with a doctor, that's great. You know, you see him for five minutes and you're in and out or whatever. Um, nurses a little more, right? You, you really can respect the stuff the nurses go through and all that. But then when you get, when you get into physical therapy, man, you, you really uh, you have, you have an appreciation for what physical therapists do. And, and, and they, they, they've got to have that, uh, that selfless attitude, right, to do be great. And, they, and all of my seen, they, they've got it, right? They care so much to figure out all the little issues and work on the last 10 years. I've grown to be I, I didn't know what physical therapy was 10 years ago, probably, right? Yeah. And nowadays, I've, I've seen it so many times that, uh, that where, where it's really helped somebody along that would not, have been, would not have been a good place without it compared to a doctor you go visit, uh, a nurse if you're in the hospital, whatever, right? So the impact that you can make in this business is so cool, right? If you can really measure impact, holy cow, think of the impact these 5,000, this 5,000-person 5, team does, it makes every day, right, on society. That's yeah. pretty cool. Pretty cool. So no, it's yeah. great. It's a it's a great field. I love the field. I encourage people. I've talked to a lot of young people that are interested in physical therapy and outpatient care and athletic training every week, and it's uh, part of my gig now, and I I love it. But uh, you have to have as to what you said, Gary. You have to have a passion for healthcare. You got to want to get people better, and you got to want to be the one that gets them back to full capacity or full health or back on the field. And it's such a re rewarding career for that alone. So my goal is to build a new political party in Illinois, a new Republican party, right? And I'm thinking, I, I got I to find physical therapists who want to get into politics because we need selfless leaders. We got to stop with the, with the corrupt, selfish, you know, selfish politicians we have in states like Illinois. So I'm going after, I'm going after physical therapists now. That's, that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> Retired, probably, yeah, right? But uh, anyway, no, I, because I'm telling you, every, every, every physical therapist I've seen, including my, my, my niece, uh, another girl goes to church with us that we've seen it. Actually, they both work. Oh for you um uh and and uh you know they, they they're caring people they, they, they're selfless caring people right yeah. and, and uh, so we were at ric for some time same way there unbelievable people there but yeah, yeah my niece uh, nicole, nicole blackowitz uh handles like a rockford area the schools stop by rockford area for you guys and uh, loves what she does and, and she helps with my wife helps with us anyone anything we need as well so pretty cool yeah. but uh Anyway, uh, when we, let's let's go. Any any questions, Robbie, um, that you've got to, to dig into our, our buddy Mark here? I do indeed. So I probably should have mentioned this earlier, Mark, but 
all of my siblings married physical therapists. So I've oh. been sur- surrounded by it for the last 10, 15 years now. Uh, so one actually a fun uh, Thanksgiving dinner talk. <laughs> oh yeah. Any injury that comes years. up, I, I know who to call, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, yeah. So my brother-in-law down here in Chicago worked at ATI. Uh, mm-hmm. My other brother-in-law up in Madison works at UW Health with sure. UW Health System. And then my sister-in-law works for the beta care system up in like the Appleton Oshkosh area in Wisconsin. Right. Uh, but anyways, the reason I bring that up is a topic of conversation actually around the dinner table is, that we've had consistently is their frustration with some of the documentation and the processes internally that they have to go through. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm interested in understanding what sort of softwares or augmentations have you guys started to implement to streamline that and, and make the lives of the PTs a little bit easier so they can focus on the, the patient and their health. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been an interesting uh, evolution in that. Um, we had, uh, back in the old days, you know, when I started, you'd carry around a stack of charts, you worked them for each individual patient, you'd document in a short brief note that you could re- uh, refer to, rely on for the next time you treat it, because we always have, we always like, and, uh, and our philosophy is you have one therapist take the patient through the course of care, you don't have multiple. But, you know, uh, going to some of Gary's comments and, uh, you know, we're the government, we're here to help. The government has made it difficult with us, for us, uh, and some of the re- restrictions and, and some of them are needed. You know, the Privacy Act, HIPAA uh, laws and regulations and uh, the electronic medical record requirement, which ultimately is a good thing. But the way it was rolled out or the demands put on companies like ours were, you know, in some ways onerous to the point where it made, made things very difficult for the therapists providing care and for the companies to deliver, you know, all the uh, technology to our team. We've, we've developed a system that's, you know, proprietary. We've took a, took a base box system and customized our own templates so our team could work through it. We've, you know, uh, worked with, like when we did the acquisition of Accelerator, we pulled those together to make them even better took their version, our version, created a better version. We since refined that. And at the same time, we're probably going to be moving towards a different system or a better system in the next year or two. You always have to be in front of technology. We used to use dictaphones. We used to use handhelds. We Now we have, you know, each therapist has their laptop and goes around and does their own documentation through uh, the templates. And you try to be thorough and you try to be efficient and you try to give your therapist as much time they can have because they want to treat patients. They want their hands on the patients. So that is the goal to get their, you know, get them uh, more time to do what they do uh, best and what they love to do. And sometimes the requirements uh, make it difficult, but uh, I understand it. I'm going to talk badly about compliance and HIPAA and privacy act and things, but sometimes, you know, it, it doesn't really, does the level of uh, regulation make sense for us? So, um, you know, problem is uh, with CMS or Medicare, they're the one, they're the lead dog and uh, all the payers generally follow them. And that's like right now I'm working with the industry at a uh, Zoom, Zoom meeting earlier today for the, something's called the Alliance of Physical Therapy Quality Innovation. It's basically a industry group where we're trying to push back against what, Medicare came out with, which is a 9% cut to reimbursement for physical therapy services. So 9%, you know, cut for a third of your business, you know, our business is uh, 25 to 30% uh, Medicare and that population is going to grow. We have to push back on it. And we don't have, the problem is we don't have a voice in the room. The people that decide is an antiquated, uh, something called the RUC process out at CMS in DC. They come up with this 
a bunch of doctors in the room, no physical therapist, and they decide who's going to take a cut and who's going to get a raise. And then naturally, groups like us take cuts, so we have to push back. We got, yeah. got involved with lobbying and sitting, you know, doing the, the DC run a few times, and now we're doing it virtually, and it's just part of the game you have to play now, and it's just a really bad system. And don't get me started on Illinois. There's a group, uh, there's a, uh, yeah, that's a whole other conversation we can have later, buddy. But uh, there's a group called Job Creators Network, Mark, that I was one of the, I was one of the founding members of and still on the board of that you might want to look at. I, I, you know, we've been very strong in, in fighting bad regulation. And it's usually led by somebody from industry that comes to us and say, hey, here's something that's going to kill jobs. And, and baby, it's all about killing jobs, right? When you're, when you're killing industries, certain industries, you're killing jobs. Right. And so, so again, if you, if you ever want to look into it, or I, I can get you in front of our team, but bottom line is when you got an issue, go to them, they'll dig into it, and then they'll get our CEOs across the country to speak up about it. So that happened with the franchise laws that, we're going to, that, that when the, in the Obama administration were looking to change so that every franchisee could be held accountable, excuse me, every franchisor could be held accountable for the franchisees, right? Which would ruin the, the franchise relationship and you wouldn't have them, right? But right. bottom line is they're going, going to get that done. And uh, I got a couple of friends of mine from YPO, actually, good friends of mine that are big, they're big franchisors to get involved on our board. And sure enough, boy, we, we stopped it. And it was, uh, you know, the 2,200 CEOs across the country that all, you know, most of them, I get, you know, are, are, are just uh, told to speak up about this, this, this rule, that'll, this regulation that will kill an industry or hurt an industry. So something that if you ever want to look in, it's called JCM. Um, Bernie Marcus started it about 10 years ago. I was one of the first CEOs on board and we've got, you know, a couple thousand now. So, um, got a great, great voice and, 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 uh, and they're, we're very connected to DC. So it's kind of neat. Yeah. I wrote that down. And you're um, right. okay, so, uh, what else you got? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah sorry was it, that. I say the last question that I had written down was just a, a curiosity around how you had to pivot during the virus. Obviously, I know you said that you guys were deemed essential, but mm -hmm. uh, I know, for example, due to my siblings, uh, they mentioned some telehealth starting to see the early stages of that with MPT and some of the hiccups that have come along with that. Uh, yep. But I'm just curious to understand sort of how the pandemic impacted you and your business and if you see any trends that might last. Yeah, you know, the leadership, uh, yeah, it's a good question. Seems so long ago, right? But, you know, mid-March, I was at the uh, Big Ten basketball tournament uh, in Indianapolis representing Atletico and doing what I need to do there. And, you know, we get words comes out that they're shutting down the tournament to fans the next day, and then it comes out the whole tournament's shut down. And then, as we all know, our world was upside down. And so I remember saying to myself, I just can't, every thought of mine, it felt like in my head there was just these dominoes falling, ar falling around, meaning – Everything I thought of led to another thought, led to another thought. Well, what if this happens and that happens? And then, and I, I just kept saying, I can't get my arms around this yet. But luckily for us and our team, you know, I think we, we came together. Ron, our CEO, did a great job leading us through that. The team pulled together. We had already started something uh, that became our telehealth service um, that we were doing with our athletic trainers. Uh, virtual visits, so to speak, and virtual evaluations, just giving people insight on what might be going on. So we took that and rolled out telehealth to where during the high point of the pandemic, call it, we were doing practically 10% of our, our clinic or 10% of our physical therapy visits were being done via telehealth. And that got, number got up to thousands. It's dropped down some now as patients and people are more comfortable in the clinic situation, which 
honestly delivers the best care, but it forced us to quickly pivot, as you said, and uh, recognize how we could deliver services in through a different path. And that's here to stay. Um, there's, you know, for people in the old, I think business travel is going to be hugely affected here, but a patient that I remember treating, I'd treat them twice and then they had to go on the road or they were a consultant Monday to Thursday and I wouldn't see them. And I'd ask them, here's your home program. Here's a picture of a few exercises you need to do in the hotel. They'd never do them. They never get better. You know, it took longer for them to recover from their injuries because they simply weren't able to be as compliant and consistent with their visits. But now you, you have that. You can do it with a phone. You can do it with this laptop. You can do it um, any number of ways. And, uh, and people are seeing. And, and two, didn't surprise me much, but therapists and athletic, physical therapists, occupational therapists, hand therapists, athletic trainers, some of the most creative, resilient people I know. And they quickly, I mean, you just, you had to watch it to appreciate it. But, you know, their first, me giving you some visual uh, verbal instructions over, over this, you know, and I'd figure out very quickly what worked and what didn't work to where within a week I was good at delivering telehealth virtual visits. And I saw that happen with our team that they became very proficient very quickly in how to do that, having no experience. We rolled out a platform-wide training practically overnight. Uh, we trained people up. We got them the equipment, and uh, we got them up and doing it. And uh, to the team's credit, they did a fantastic job. I don't know where I, I see that ultimately landing, but it, like you said, it's going to be part of the go forward because people want – I'm grabbing my phone right now. People want access you know, on their terms. They want – they don't <laughs> – when, if you ask a group of, I'll call kids your age, when was the last time you called and made a dinner reservation, you'd probably laugh at me because you'll just go on and book it like my daughters do, where I still call. I bet Gary still calls and makes a dinner reservation once in a while. But uh, it's the same with healthcare. You want it at your fingertips, and you want to be able to log on. And if Athletico can't deliver it, you'll find somebody yeah. else. And so we've had to adjust. Interesting. Well, perseverance is key. Nice job. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. The team's done a good job. So, so uh, we'll round out. Uh, what do you do for what do you do for fun? What do you do for recreation? You and your family, Mark, or you individually? Um, well, we we you know I, I I fell in love with the desert when I was down in grad school. The Iowa boy that went down the desert and hated it because it was all brown and hot, and I was working football all day. And then six weeks later, it's October fifteenth, and it's beautiful, and I never want to leave. Right, and so we. Uh, we, we have a place we get to now, and I hope to get to more. We haven't used it as much down in Arizona and in the Phoenix area and Tucson. And so I, I find the desert uh, relaxing, spiritual, and uh, we as a family enjoy that. Uh, we've traveled, you know, with, with a Greek wife. We've been to Greece several times. I had to convince her there are some other countries in the world I'd like to visit someday before <laughs> I uh, I got a late start in travel. My, my vacations growing up were to St. Louis or Chicago or Kansas City or God help me, Des Moines, Iowa, you know, for a three-day <laughs> vacation. That was, that was a big deal. And uh, so places I want to see, we've done some travel with the girls. They're getting to the age where, you know, they're, they're more fun than I am, and uh, they, they get us out. Um, I play golf. I like to, you know, I like to exercise. Again, that's uh, golf is uh, – I play it enough to get frustrated, but uh, I like trying to get better at that and just, to, you know, the camaraderie around that. But I love sport. I like watching and, and uh, not participating. I've, I've worked with too many bad injuries that you won't see me skiing or on a rugby pitch. But uh, I like the, uh, what sport brings to the world. And um, I, 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 uh, I guess for the, the rest of the stuff, I like, I'm not a hunter fisherman, though I did grow up doing some of those activities. That 
I'll blame the girls having three daughters doesn't get me out doing that so much, but I like being outside. I like working in the garden and doing some other things. And I like, I always joke with the girls that I'm a lifelong learner. I just like learning and, uh, applying myself. And, uh, I guess for my, my professional life, setting aside Athletico, I'm involved with a number of groups. Operation walk, uh, goes out and delivers, uh, total joints, knees and hips, where we send a team of surgeons, physical therapists, uh, anesthesiologists, nursing to different parts of the world and in the United wow. States to deliver people that are basically indigent. They cannot move right now because they need a total hip. It's amazing that it's amazing what the work the work is uh, what the work delivers to these people because these people are bedridden and uh, they get give them a quality of life because they can't move because of their total knee or their arthritic hip. And uh, I'm also involved with, I've been involved with big brothers, big sisters. I'm kind of a guy that, you know, there's so much need in the world, but I, I like working on my own backyard. And so the city of Chicago, big brothers, big sisters, and metropolitan Chicago has probably been the biggest focus of my charitable efforts. So I've been on their board, board chair for a number of terms, been on the board since probably 03. And that is, uh, if you haven't, if you don't know big brothers mission, uh, big brothers, big sisters, that's mentoring of, uh, of, uh, kids at risk, you know, usually single parent and, uh, just aren't, you know, multiple kids with, uh, the kids frankly aren't going to have a chance with a quality mentor in their life. So pairing up a big, meaning a mentor, a parent or a, a, an adult with a, a child and, uh, the transformation you see through those relationships, uh, you and I, and all of us were lucky to have good mentors, good parenting, good nuclear family, but that's not always the case in cities like Chicago. And so, Got involved with those and some other uh, charitable efforts that I'm really proud to be part of and support in any way I can. Awesome, awesome. You know what? Uh, when you when you want to, you know, really, really uh, hone in that golf game, dude. You got to come out and play my golf course. It's, you, uh, you, we, it's, we hit it's that subject at one time. If we don't get it uh, this fall before the snow flies, we'll get it. I'll, I'll look forward to that. And uh, find a time. time. You got a buddy, You got a friend that, that likes to play tough golf courses. That's a, that, if anybody that's really a you know a pure golfer that loves the game, even if they're not great, they love, usually love a challenging golf course and it's in pristine condition. That's what we got. So get your butt on any time in the coming weeks to come and play Bull Valley with me. If we got to wait till spring, we'll have to wait till spring. But the course is in amazing shape. It's a lot of fun to play in the fall. So let's I want to see, see you come out whenever you can. Yeah, let's we'll see if we can make that happen. I'm writing them down. See. That's a good chance when I write things down, they get done. Yeah, let's do it. It'd be a blast. Uh, Robbie, you usually got some good takeaways there. I, I got I got mine, but go ahead with yours first, and I'll, I'll finish with just my summary that I, I got here. All right. Well, to kick it off, uh, the first takeaway that I had was actually to focus on adding value to those in your industry that are more secondary or tertiary uh, relationships. And I attributed that back to when you were starting out uh, your first clinic, you started sending referrals to other doctors in the area. And that eventually wound its way into you building up a network in, in your space. And you never asked for anything in return. And I think that's the biggest key there is building those relationships, but ultimately not expecting anything upfront in return and just doing it out of the kindness of your heart and in hopes that at the time you can make that patient better. Uh, the second one is hands-on experience is the best experience and the best teacher. And you just need to be willing to dive in head first. And, and I think that goes right back to when you had first sent that letter before going to the university of Iowa, that which sent you down the trajectory of athletic training and, and what that world all entailed. And had you not sent that first letter, life could have been a lot different today. So just mm -hmm. being willing to take those risks and, and a little bit of a leap of faith. 
the third one that I have is uh, be patient when picking a, a business partner and make sure that you align on your mission and vision. And, and obviously you, you learned through, uh, I guess I could call it a mistake uh, early on with your, your second clinic, uh, but you quickly rebounded, realigned on those mission and vision statements and, and ultimately found the right individuals moving forward. And then while I was working at LinkedIn, Reed Hoffman consistently talked about uh, leading with your true north or north star, other uh, leaders I've heard speak of. Uh, but it really comes back full circle to the story that you had mentioned of how can you speak with authenticity to your employees and how can you make everyone feel as if you're in there together? And, and operationally, what that really does is it influences your culture and the longevity of your business as a result. Uh, and the last one that I have is uh, live with the growth mindset. Is that one of the last things that you had just said is you're a lifelong learner. And, and I don't think that's by chance that as a lifelong learner, you ended up as successful as you had. Uh, and I'm a big believer in that. Great. Oh, well said. Awesome. Awesome. So, so what I, what I got this, you know, I, I, I always uh, focused on hiring farm boys and wrestlers mm -hmm. and, uh, and I usually had pretty good luck with great performers. Right. Yep. Um, and, and then, and also, you know, wrestlers are usually pretty competitive. So if they're, they're in business they, as entrepreneurs, they, they just want to kick butt every day and do the best they can to, sort of better than the rest of them, right? So I think, I think your farm boy Iowa wrestler grit is, uh, is spectacular to see and watch, and uh, it's going to continue on, and, I, and uh, I can't wait to see where this goes. But, but it's, it's pretty amazing. You know, I, I see a lot, of, a lot of entrepreneurs through a lot of the relationships that you and I have in leadership, and boy, it's, very, it's not very common when somebody goes from an uh, you know, entry-level PT employee to a startup business and then still stays on board as leading it as long as you have. Usually... Usually it's within a, you know, I would, I would say somewhere around 25% of where you've gone that, that you, you know, you got to look around, whether it's a private equities group that tells you this or a great board tells you, hey man, get the hell out of the way now. You're not built to, to, to continue to grow on this thing and scale it, right? So, so what I love is just, you know, you've partnered with a, with a, with, with a firm and yet you're, you know, you still stayed in place until, recently you're the CEO uh, of this crazy, crazy scaling growth just isn't common. That, so that, that, that definitely uh, comes back to your lifelong learning because uh, you, you had to learn so many things on how to be different all the way along. I mean, from, from the beginning to where you are today, you're, you're, you had to morph into a different type of leader the, the whole way through, right? Same core values and all that, but your skills had to change continuously, which is pretty cool because that's something that I can say I've not been great at. I've, I've, I've uh, struggled sometimes to to, to see when I shouldn't be in a place that, I, that I'm in, right? So, mm -hmm. so that's really that, that's I think that's that's awesome, and that's not common. I, I love that you're all you know your lifelong learning. Also, I think produces differentiation on a constant basis um, because you know if we if we get stagnant, um, you know competition will eat us up in a short period of time. If we can if we can stay you know stay off, always learning, always striving to be better, always trying to serve better, um, you're going to find out what's going to differentiate you to to, to to swim away from the, the, the shark infested waters of commoditization into that, the blue ocean, right? But that you're in, I think you're in today and, and that I'm always going to strive to stay in, right? So um, I, we're, we're, we're blessed to have you on the show, buddy. And, uh, and, and everybody, anybody listening to your story is going to have uh, a lot to think about for sure when it comes to, you know, how they, how they look at their, their future and their growth and their, and their entrepreneurial um, journey. So you're awesome, man. Thanks for everything. Um, any, any
mean, last losing time. at the last, last second, yeah. high. Yeah. Yeah, there you, go. <laughs> you know, the, the thing I'm listening to you guys, you know, I, I think about this. I, I, I've, I've had that pinch me moment, you know, a hundred times a year there for a while, but, uh, I, I, I've often thought that if, if uh, you would have told Mark Kaufman when he was uh, working with his dad in Olds, Iowa, thinking about going to college, that he was going to go to college for nine years and move to a city like Chicago, big city like Chicago, and work for a couple years and then start a, start a business on his own and hire 5,000 people and open 500 centers in 12 <laughs> states, I probably would have just said, you know what? I don't think so. I'll just stay and be a carpenter with my dad. So I've, uh, it was a gradual, uh, gradual progression, but, uh, you know, I'm very blessed. I'm very appreciative of all that, you know, looking back in my rear view mirror, all the mentors and important people that, that, you know, for whatever reason, it, it was perfect, right? It just, it just worked out, but, uh, it's, uh, story's not done yet, but it's been a great 30 years for Athletico. It sure has, and and we really appreciate you being on our on our podcast, buddy. Um, and, and I can't wait to get to know you better. So yeah, get your butt out uh, the off. We'll look forward to staying in touch, and uh, you guys stay healthy, and I'll stay in touch. Okay. Thanks so much, Mark. That was great. Thanks, Mark. And, well, thanks a lot. Until next time. Yeah. Uh, we'll see you. Yeah. Ditch we'll CEO, check it out. Bye. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks, Thanks Mark. man. I appreciate yeah. it, Mark. Yeah, you guys are great. Thanks a bunch. It was fun. Yeah, that was awesome. I like the tag That's team. Fun. I didn't expect that. I thought I had to talk to Gary the whole time. That was fun. Although he is a good talker. Thanks, man. Have a great day, oh, Mark. Great. Yeah, you guys stay, uh, stay healthy, like I said. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to keep moving with my uh, next uh, task on my list. But uh, we'll stay in touch. I look forward to the uh, product. And if there's anything else you need from me, let me know. And, Gary, keep put, your uh, golf clubs clean. Put, <laughs> yeah, put, put golf at Bull Valley. Put, put golf at Bull Valley in that list now. Okay, yeah. I got it. I already read it, wrote it down. It's right there. <laughs> okay, right, guys. See you guys. See ya. If you enjoy this show, please share with anyone else you think will find value here. And please go to our website, ditchdiggerceo.com for show notes, links, video clips, and more nuggets of entrepreneurial wisdom. Don't forget to follow me on social media at ditchdiggerceo and at Gary Rabine. If you listen to our show and want to become more successful, you will become more successful. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Lord, I was called Ditch Digger Man Aiming for a living and doing the best I can Discovered entrepreneurship Scaling business plans Then I became the CEO man we're blessed to build a business in America Where soldiers fight for our freedom every day Dad's work ethic was taught from the seat of a gravel truck Rolling down Highway 31 Lord, I was called Ditch Digger Man Aiming for a living and doing the best I can Discovered entrepreneurship, scaling business plans Then I became the CEO man <laughs>